I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Jason Karp is the founder and CEO of HumanCo, a private holding company that incubates and invests in companies focused on healthier living and sustainability. Jason was the co-founder of Hue Kitchen and Hue Products, which was recently acquired by Mondelez. Prior to his career in health and wellness, Jason was the founder and CEO of Turbion Capital Partners, an investment fund that managed over $4 billion and has over 21 years of investment experience. On this episode, Jason talks about the decision-making frameworks and mental models he uses, what he's learned from playing poker and elite sports, how he took control of his health and cured multiple autoimmune diseases, and so much more. If you're interested in performing better across all areas of your life, then you will love this episode. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Jason, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yep, this is this is one of those fun ones. We we get to dive into a lot of different topics. I know we're going to talk about change, inflection points, decision making, challenging assumptions, but a place I would love to start is a framework you have and that's gasoline versus water. And I would love for oh. you just to describe this framework. Oh wow. I you you went deep on this one, Sean. Um so you know, I I've been studying uh myself and, and others in human psychology for as long as I can remember. It's always fascinated me. And, you know, I, I think the single most important determinant of success in life, and certainly has been for me, is the quality of the decisions that you make in life. And when you think about the number of decisions we make every day, um, everything from what you choose to eat to if you work out or not to, you know, what most people would think of as business decisions – I mean, you're literally making hundreds of small decisions a day, and then you add that up over time, and there's a compounding effect. And so I believe the quality of your decision-making and the frameworks that you use for decision-making are the most important thing that you can work on in, in your lifetime. And one of the things I noticed about myself when I was uh, younger, um, I had a temper, I was much more insecure in my own uh, place in the world, um, and I and it really was difficult for me to be criticized, to get constructive feedback, to um, to be told I was wrong. 
you know, this was something that, that my ego didn't like very well, very much when I was younger. Um, and when I looked around, uh, one of the things I noticed uh, as a huge problem for everybody from married people who were getting divorced to my own friends um, was this idea that when you're, when you're confronted with a conflict uh, or something that bothers you, um, I consider that to be like a, like a fire. And, you know, it, it's, it's most sort of pronounced when someone disagrees with you or somebody says something that offends you or offends your ego. Um, and, and I noticed that most people, including myself when I was younger, um, when you're presented with a fire, you have a choice as a, as a human. You could either throw gasoline on that fire or you could throw water on that fire. And, and I noticed that, that myself in particular always threw gasoline. So if somebody said something that upset me or somebody did something that upset me, my way of dealing with that and my ego was to uh, fight back. And, and in fighting back, I was effectively throwing gasoline on it. Um, and, and I noticed that, that while it gave me satisfaction for three seconds or five seconds or 10 seconds, it was ultimately a bad move. Um, and I find that a lot of relationships, business relationships, love relationships, friend relationships break because of this principle. Um, and, and I started realizing uh, that when I threw water on it, which requires a huge uh, leap in your own ego, because you're effectively big, being the bigger person. You're not fighting back. You're not saying, well, I have a zinger that's going to actually prove you wrong. Um, you're actually looking for solutions to de-escalate that conflict. Um, and, and I started probably practicing this in my early twenties, uh, after, you know, I was, I was particularly good at, um, saying terrible things back to people when I was offended and, and I ruined some relationships early on in my like teens where I, I had this knack of, of just effectively burning bridges because I was so witty in what my comebacks would be, but they were hurtful. Um, and it, it got me nowhere. And it really was, it was sort of something I felt terrible about. Um, and so I started this gasoline versus uh, water metaphor. Um, and I'd say it's probably the single most important determinant to the quality of my marriage. Um, I've been with my wife for 19 years now. Um, and, you know, like anybody, we fight, you know, regularly. We have disagreements regularly. I wouldn't use the word fight because it's not really a fight. Um, but there's a lot of times where I sort of choose the high road um, and I figure out ways to throw water uh, on a situation instead of gasoline. And when you use this framework and you think about it in terms of water versus gasoline and somebody says something to you or you're in a, a disagreement in business or a disagreement in your relationship, you and you pause for three seconds or five seconds and you just consciously think, am I going to throw water on this or am I going to throw gasoline on this? And it's amazing if you pause how obvious it is that your initial instinct was to throw gasoline. Um, so anyway, this has been probably one of my single greatest uh, frameworks for dealing with people in a constructive way. Uh, and it's been a really nice framework for myself in sort of self-learning and self-discovery um, because you realize like there's no 
there's just no upside, you know, in in escalating it 99% of the time. There's a there's a tail scenario which I've noticed with a few people and again, I don't want to uh, monopolize the time of this podcast. No, but it. there's there's a rare breed of person which I've encountered that needs the escalation. They need the gasoline. They won't listen to you without the gasoline. And but they're very very rare and I would say by and large uh, water is always the the better move. I love it. Yeah, even those simple, elegant solutions—they're uh, usually so obvious and applicable across other domains. That's what you're talking about in business, in, in your marriage, those relationships. That, that's why I love this one so much. It's so beautiful. I know you mentioned in your early 20s, kind of understanding that throwing water was being more beneficial. Was this just you seeing this pattern over time, or did you have other influences that helped speed up this process and, and you to see this framework a little quicker? Um, I'm sure I had other influences. I, I don't have anything explicit. I mean, I, I used to love to read books about human psychology, about what makes people tick. Um, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on behavioral finance when I was uh, a professional investor. Um, and, and a lot of it was just studying myself. I used to keep a log uh, of my own shortcomings, my own failures. Um, and, and I noticed that that particularly in my first few years of working when I had a lot of bosses, you know, several of those bosses I thought I was smarter than, you know, and, and I had a really hard time with authority when I was younger. Um, and I just noticed that that I wasn't I wasn't optimizing my own progression. I mean, probably the greatest influence on me in those days was Charlie Munger and and some of the early writings of Charlie Munger you know, where, where he noticed himself that, that, that many of his own psychological shortcomings were actually what was getting in the way of his own investment progression. Um, and, and I really took that to heart. And I noticed with, there was one person in particular that I used to work with when I first started working who had a, a very poor uh, bedside manner, a poor EQ, brilliant, brilliant guy. But he used to really be critical of me and, and was trying to help me, but the way he delivered it was terrible. And at first, like, I just couldn't deal with it. And, and I would throw gasoline on it. And I would sort of realize, like, this guy's actually giving me knowledge and giving me wisdom. And I'm sort of, like, stopping it because of I can't handle the way he delivers it. Um, and it started with this particular person. And then I noticed it with early relationships before I got married, with dating, you know, with my friends, with my parents. And I started sort of exploring this um, and it was just, it was, ma it was magical. I mean, really, it's, it's like when you embrace this, it's incredible what happens and it happens really fast. And people are sort of like surprised that you're actually going the other direction of what they were expecting, particularly when it's offensive, you know, because um, sometimes it's actually downright offensive where someone's just rude. And, and your, your, your sort of ego wants to be rude back. Um, but you realize it doesn't, it doesn't lead to anything good. And so, yeah, I would say Munger was probably my greatest influence on this in the, in my early twenties. Yeah. You mentioned the ability to see this and then this is speed up even quicker. I mean, that feedback loop when you're throwing water on things and you're realizing how quickly this is turn, turning to a positive scenario, that's going to be really helpful. You brought up something a second ago about actually keeping a log of this. So was this really a journal or log of just bad decisions and places you failed? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, there were two things that I, I always did 
um, uh, I started actually as a teenager. Um, I was obsessed with quotes. Um, my father had a book of quotations in our family, uh, like library. It wasn't really a library. There were probably, I don't know, 50 books or so, but he had this book of quotations. that was probably from the, the, like the seventies. Um, and I used, I, I, I've always loved quotes and I used to sit around and read them, um, uh, for fun. And, and, and a lot of these quotes that, you know, go back to the, in, in some cases, like, like, you know, uh, BC, um, I found to just cap, you know, capture certain nuggets of wisdom that you can tell have been consistent over thousands of years. And, and I found them to be much more uh, succinct and powerful than reading like entire books. Cause a lot of these messages were coming from just specific quotes. And, 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 and I thought that, that many of these quotes were coming from people who were very observant and, and would reflect on life and their own, daily living through journaling, um, even though I actually wasn't told by anyone to journal. And then I just noticed that, that I was reflecting much more by writing down my own experiences. And, uh, and so it started probably in high school when I started journaling. Um, and then it was really pronounced, uh, right when I started working because, uh, I was doing a style of, of investing and, and trading early on where it was lots and lots and lots of stocks. It wasn't, you know, long-term types of bets. And, and there was just a, a ton of feedback loops. And then the other area of journaling where I spent a lot of time was in poker. I was playing a lot of competitive poker in the mid nineties and the late nineties. And I noticed my, um, uh, my behaviors, my patterns um, were, I, I was learning and iterating much faster if I was recording them. Um, and, and, and so that to me was really critical because in some of these patterns, I actually didn't observe them myself until I looked at my log. And when I looked at my log and I said, wow, I've repeated this mistake three times now. So there's clearly something inside of me that's, that is instinctual that I need to figure out a way to deal with. Um, and so a lot of kind of my early frameworks and early um, uh, learnings came from studying kind of my own patterns. Yeah, it seems like one of the big themes here is know thyself. I think that's one of the, the most important things. I would love to know as you progressed what that self-assessment, really looking deep, how, how has that changed for you or maybe that hasn't at all? Oh, I mean, look, I think I've changed a massive amount over the last 25 years, um, you know, and, and, and I believe everyone should evolve and I believe everyone should always be kind of improving and learning. And, you know, I, I, I think um, I had a lot of growing up to do, you know, I, I had and I've always I've always been sort of a complex person and, and in good and bad ways. Um, and um I think I'm a compl- I don't think I would recognize myself now uh, to my 25 year old self. Um, and, and frankly, I think I, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you look very similar in personality and behaviors and uh, wisdom as you did when you were, you know, a teenager or in your early 20s. I, I, I think you failed in life if you're the same. 
Um, and, and so I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly studying myself and other people. And, and I look around and, and, and I just, I'm, I'm very observant of others. And, and when I see traits in other people that I don't like, I look inward and I think, do, you know, are there traits that I don't like in them that are in me? And there's, you know, there's a, there's a common saying that you, you tend to be annoyed and dislike patterns in other people that you actually have yourself, um, which I generally believe. Um, but I think it's, it's about being observant. It's about when you have an interaction or, or a situation that bothers you, there's, there's information in the fact that you were bothered. And then you, and then I would reflect, why am I bothered? What is it about this that bothered me? You know, is it them or is it me? And a lot of times it was me. Um, and, uh, and, and if it's them, you know, then I try to drill down specifically, like, well, what is it that, that was bad? And is this something that is that, that I can improve upon? Is this something I can give feedback to them about? Or is this something where they're just like a bad person or they have a bad, you know, set of behaviors that I just can't, you know, fix or deal with? It's almost like that onion, right? Like you keep unpeeling, you get further and further. The more you look at it, most people just stop that surface level. They're unwilling to go deeper there. You you brought up multiple times about being observant, and I know you were a competitive athlete playing multiple racket sports. I would love to know what this looked like for you early on in terms of your skill development playing solo sports. Yeah, I always was attracted to solo sports um, or individual sports over team sports. Um, because I, I, I found them also much more um, conducive to iteration, right? It's all me, right? How I do in tennis or squash, uh, which were my two primary sports, um, uh, you know, for the short period that I paid, played golf, uh, I, I would extend this also to poker, you know, which is, which is very much, you know, sort of falls on you in terms of your decision-making. Um, you know, you get a lot of feedback and, and those feedback loops are very valuable. Um, so I, um, look, I, I think it took me longer than I would have liked uh, to sort of figure this out, but there's this concept of deliberate practice that a lot of um, high performance coaches discuss, which is that when you get out there, and you're practicing or you're working out or you're doing anything, you have a certain amount of time. And a lot of people just sort of, you know, go through the motions while they're out there, but they're not being very deliberate about what am I working on today? What am I actually trying to improve? What is it about, you know, when I hit my forehand this way, why it's not, you know, falling a certain way or going exactly where I'm trying to place it. Um, and so I'm just much more conscious and aware of the physics in the case of sports and what my body is doing to interact with those physics. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's helped me progress faster. I don't think I'm inherently a great athlete. I, I you know, I think many of my friends think I am because of, of uh, how high performance I've been in a few different sports. Um, but I think in the case of squash, squash was sort of a remarkable journey for me because I actually was a tennis player most of my life. And, um, uh, I dislocated my shoulder when I was 16 and it sort of ruined my tennis career. Um, 
And I got to Penn, um, supposed to play tennis. Uh, and I switched to squash right when I got there because my shoulder just wasn't going to allow me to play tennis. And I was a walk-on. You know, I started off, and, and Penn at the time was fourth or fifth in the country, um, D1. And uh, the coach, uh, who is I consider one of my greatest mentors of all time, um, allowed me to join the team as a novice. Uh, and I was 20 out of 20 on the team um, as a, you know, as a tennis player. I was not a squash player. And, and I was able to progress much faster than others um, because squash is actually one of those rare sports you can practice by yourself. You're hitting a wall um, and you can literally iterate yourself. Uh, and I watched my progression in squash far faster than my progression in tennis. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, it, you know, I, I think of all of these things as metaphors for, um, for kind of stadiums for self-improvement hmm. where you just have all sorts of different things thrown at you on how to deal with it. Um, but you know, sports to me was invaluable and, and, and I really encourage, you know, all parents, uh, um, to have their children play sports, organize sports, uh, cause it just teaches you so many great life lessons that are hard to get in school. Jason, that's fascinating. I would love to know when you decide to walk on what your internal dialogue was like. I was very scared. You know, the, the, the backstory was, um, it was the first like month and a half of school. Everyone's kind of new. Nobody knows each other. There was a guy on my hall who was a squash, a squash recruit. And he had heard that I was a tennis recruit. Um, and he had asked me, uh, he said, Hey, I don't know anybody here, but I want to hit some squash balls before preseason. <laughs> you know, would you come out on the court and hit with me? And I was, you know, just trying to make friends. And I was like, sure. Um, and I played squash, I think two times in my life prior to that. And I went out and I hit with him and he didn't beat me that badly. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is actually so much fun. And I had this kind of beginner's mind again. And I was, I was burnt out from tennis and I, I, I played that whole summer. And, and, uh, I remember thinking like, this is really fun. And I think I could be good at this. And, you know, it sort of seemed odd to my friends at the time because they were like, you're going to try a brand new sport right when you get to college, when everyone wants to sort of party and figure out how to balance like studying with like social and I, I don't fully know if I was being really logical about it um, from like a time allocation perspective. But um, I went to the coach and I said, and I was in amazing shape at the time. And I went to the coach. And I said, look, uh, I was supposed to play tennis. My shoulder's a mess. Um, I think I want to try squash. I, I'll, I'll work harder than anybody on your team. I took pride in sort of my work ethic. And I said, and I'm really fit. So can I try out? And he said to me, he said, look, if you can make it through our preseason, which was basically a war of attrition, you know, it wasn't about playing squash. It was basically about weeding out people who didn't want to be on the team because apparently there were like all these boarding school kids who played squash in boarding school and were sort of overweight and not fit. And he didn't want them on the team. And, uh, you know, they just sort of thought they could just walk on and not try. 
And, and there were definitely people that were much better than me during the tryouts in terms of their skill, but I was fitter than everybody. And, and uh, I outworked them and he saved the last spot for me. Um, and he gave me a real break. And, and I'll say that, that uh, about a month and a half in, so I made the team, but was like by far the worst. Um, and, and he, and he um, about a month and a half in, uh, I had decided I was going to transfer into the Wharton school. I was pre-med. And the Wharton school at the time, I think it's still the case, is the top undergraduate school in the United States. It's harder to get into than Harvard. Um, it is basically the valedictorian of every high school in the country. And, and I was very nervous about transferring in because of how competitive it was. Um, and I went to the coach and I said, look, I think I'm going to transfer into Wharton. I want to focus on business. I'm going to quit because I don't think I can balance, you know, trying to join a fraternity. You know, I had to take all these extra classes to transfer into Wharton and squash. And this was probably one of those pivotal moments of my life. He sat me down and he said, Jason, you know, I think you really have the, the gifts uh, to do this. You know, I see greatness in you. Um, I want you to stick this out. I want to see what you become. Don't quit. And, and I listened to him and I didn't quit. And, uh, and that was a, an incredibly difficult and important decision of my lifetime uh, because sticking with squash not only taught me an immense amount of learnings around work-life balance, uh, but also what I could achieve, you know, and I ultimately, you know, got to two or three on the team from 20 and finished like 36th in the country by the time I was a senior. Um, and I was an academic All-American and All-Ivy. Um, and I didn't think I was capable of any of that. And, and it just taught me that basically I could do anything I wanted if I applied myself. And to this day, you know, I, I've told that coach that he changed my life. Yeah, two things you brought up there that I just love. First, the Shoshin, that beginner's mind, but that comboed with that work ethic. Um, it's obviously, this is still applicable, it sounds like, to what you're doing today. But the other point, you talk about that coach. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this where someone almost, all they need is that person, they respect that mentor to say, I see you, I believe in you. And that can forever shape and change someone's trajectory. So, so that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that story. Why did you uh, decide to switch over to, uh, to Wharton and leave uh, med school? This is great. These are all, these are all new questions. So I like this. <laughs> um, uh, it's a funny story. And it's actually, um, you know, I'd say my freshman year of college were, was probably my most pivotal year of my, pivotal year of my entire life. Um, for, for that story that I just told you and then the one I'm about to tell you. So I, I was... Um, I'm probably a, a, a well-understood underachiever uh, for my entire youth until I got to college. Um, and, you know, I wasn't even in the top 50 uh, in my high school. Um, and I, I, I had undiagnosed ADHD my, my whole life. Um, I had a really hard time reading books uh, because of my ADD. Um, I didn't read a full book. And my teachers, you know, uh, hopefully none of them listen to this podcast. Um, I didn't read a full book until I was 17 years old. Um, I basically survived off of skimming, off of cliff notes, off of movies, you know, the movies of the books. Um, 
and uh, and I hated most of school. Um, there were a few subjects I really liked, but I got really bored. Um, I was much more interested in video games, in poker, in making explosives at my home, which I, which I did. Um, people who I grew up with know this, but everyone who knows me now can't believe that this is how I was as a kid. Um, and I, I had a, I had a couple teachers, uh, in high school who were like my coach who said exactly what you just told me, right? They pulled me aside and said, I see greatness in you. You know, let me help you. Let me help you sort of focus because you're all over the place. And I was very insecure about my, um, I'll call it a learning disability at the time. Um, but by the time I was a senior and with the help of a few of these teachers, I had figured out a way, I don't know how actually, but I had figured out a way to channel my ADD in a very productive way. And it made me a super learner. And so I basically went from somebody who had a very difficult time absorbing information that I wasn't interested in. I had kind of a variant of ADD where I hyper-focus on things that I love and I couldn't focus on things that I didn't like. And, and I figured out a way to learn how to focus on things I didn't like. And it, it, it kind of flipped me from disadvantaged to massively advantaged. And, and so by the time I graduated high school, my grades were the worst my freshman year of high school and just kept getting better and better by the time I was a senior. And so by the time I got to Penn, I was like a super learner. And I found that Penn was easy for me, which is shocking because my high school was impossible for me. And so it was this sort of like, like I was almost like a diamond under pressure that just kept getting, like I had to figure out how to survive with my own challenges. And so I get to Penn and, and I was pre-med. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor, but because of my athletic schedule, I had to take the Wharton version of econ. And you had two choices uh, as a freshman. You could take the Penn version, the college version of econ, which I think didn't have a curve. It was considered much easier. Um, and everyone was like, don't take the Wharton version of econ because it's all the Wharton kids who had much more competitiveness. There was a forced curve in the Wharton econ. And, and my athletic schedule with squash didn't allow me to take the regular one. So I was very nervous, but I noticed when I was in econ and remember, I was like a, I was like a B, B minus student coming into Penn. Like it was sort of a miracle. I got into Penn and, and I get there and I noticed that econ almost was like a second language for me and, and I, but I didn't pull, fully perceive it. And, and I it was just one of these things where I was like, this is like really easy for me. This is great. And, and it was a huge class and there were like 200 kids and, and everyone was super competitive in it. And I was very nervous that I was like the worst, like I had no business being in this class. Um, and there were a couple kids that came up to me, one of whom is still a good friend of mine today, uh, like before the first exam, because I, I like to ask a lot of questions. And one of them came up to me who I considered like a really smart kid who I thought was like way above me in terms of his like, qual you know, qualifications to be in this class. And he's like, hey, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Will you study with me? And I was so flattered. Nobody had ever asked me to study with them. And I was like, okay. And, and we studied like the week before the first, it was my first exam of college. And we studied and it was clear, like I just remembered everything. It was like bizarre. It was sort of, 
you know, it was sort of my goodwill hunting moment. Like it just like everything clicked. I didn't have to like reread anything. I remembered everything. It was bizarre. And long story short, um, the night before the exam, uh, I was still in my old patterns. You know, there was a girl I was really interested in and I decided to go out like on a date with her that night and I didn't study for the test. It was like insane in retrospect. And this is like my first big test of college. And my parents were just so happy that I was like at Penn. Like they were just so happy that I was in Penn. And I take this test and I thought I did fine. Like I couldn't tell if I crushed it or not, whatever. And then the, the teacher a week later comes back and he's handing out all the results and he's explaining to us what a curve is. And I didn't know what a curve was at the time. And the, the mean on this test was like a 51. And, and so he was explaining to everybody that if you got like a 51, it was like a B. It wasn't a failure. It was like a B. And the, you know, and he puts up on the, the chalkboard, the distribution, like the, the max was a 91. The min was a zero. Like someone actually got a zero on this first test. And, and, you know, these are 200 of the smartest kids in the country. And, you know, I think I'm this outsider. I have no business being here. I'm so insecure. And I, and I'm not even paying attention to the teacher. And so I looked down at my test and I got a 91, which I thought was an A minus. And I'm like, okay, I got an A minus on my first test in college. This is amazing. And I'll, you know, I'm going to like call my parents and they'll be so proud. I got an A minus. And then he's explaining that 91 was the top score. And then there was a kid behind me who pointed at me and goes, that's the kid who got the 91. And I got really embarrassed and I blushed and I was bright red and uh, everyone looked at me and like, I, I, I somehow got the highest score on the first test in uh, of Penn at, at the highest, at the best school in the country. And I'm like looking around and I'm thinking like, this is like, there's no way this is real. Like I'm being punked. And, um, and then I'd sort of sunk in and I went from embarrassment to like, holy shit, maybe this is inside me and now I can channel it. And I never wanted that feeling to stop. And from that moment on, I decided I was going to go from an underachiever to an overachiever and that I was going to never let that feeling stop of just crushing stuff. And, and I just figured out from then on how to apply myself in certain areas. I do think I have some gifts um, where I, I have a photographic memory in certain areas, not all. And so in certain areas, like things were a breeze for me, but in other areas I had to try just like everybody else. Um, and in other areas I was probably deficient and I had to overwork people and I figured out how to compensate. And that really set me on this path for the rest of my life of applying myself. So Ashton Kutcher never, uh, never popped out of the, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, it was real. And I ended up, you know, I ended up getting an A plus in that class and, and I had never, I mean, maybe in like middle school, I had an A plus, but I'd like never, I never got A pluses. And like, I don't know, it was just something like something happened where it was just like, my ADD, I figured out a way to hack it. And I, and I just flipped from being like, um, uh, having like a learning disability to being like a learning machine. And, and I don't fully know how I flipped it, but I did. And it was, it, it really felt like a miracle. That inflection point you were talking before, you were so insecure. Did that 
progress lead to all of a sudden you having the self-confidence or did you still have that insecurity? No, I still had that insecurity. I, I, I have what's well described as a, as sort of an imposter complex. Um, I, I think finally in the last five or 10 years, I've made more peace with it. But if you Google imposter complex or they, some people call it the fraud complex, it's a, it's a well-diagnosed psychological uh, trait, particularly in people who are like very, very overachiever um, or hyper successful. And it's basically this notion that you never fully believe you're the person that you are or you're the person that people think you are. And you feel like you're an imposter. You feel like, like I got lucky. This wasn't me, you know, and then you want to do everything you can to sort of keep up the, the mirage. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a demon that you cannot quiet no matter how many accolades you get, no matter how much money you earn, it's a demon that just doesn't go away. And when you meet those people who like became a billionaire and then they work as if nothing changed to get to 2 billion and 4 billion and 10 billion. And you're like, wow, at one point in that guy's life, he was a billionaire and most people would have stopped and they're just keep going. And a lot of times it's greed, but in many instances, and, and I've worked for a few of these people who have tremendous imposter complex, like I do, you realize it has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with this sort of like, I'm trying to fill this hole that is unfillable, hmm. that I, I always think I'm an imposter and what everyone thinks of me is wrong. And I just have to keep proving to myself that maybe it's not wrong. And it's a, it's a real nasty double-edged sword. Uh, that I think has led to some of my own illnesses and my autoimmune issues and my depression. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a thing that I, I, you know, when I look for people to bet on from an investor perspective, when I look for people that I want to put money on, I look for imposter complex because there's, I've never seen a force that's more powerful than this. It's funny you say that. I was recently having a, a deep private conversation with a very successful Navy SEAL, and this is exactly what we were talking a ton about, where I couldn't believe some of the accolades this person had experienced, that today they still have that. And yeah, that, that's a really interesting one from an investing framework um, and you thinking through. What else make your spidey sense just kind of uptick a little bit when meeting with a potential investment? Um, well, look, I, I believe in most cases, um, even for high tech businesses, they still revolve around the people, right? I think a lot of people uh, underestimate the importance of the people behind a business and they overestimate the product or overestimate, you know, the hardware or the software. Um, I think, you know, for one, two, three years, the product and the hardware and the software and whatever is what matters. But how you pivot, how that product evolves. I mean, just look at like Jeff Bezos as an example. Um, you know, he had many pivots along the way. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook would be like a disaster if they never bought Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, and you think about like how these different um, icons have pivoted and, and that's the people. And so I spend a lot of time on the people. I spend a lot of time on what makes this person tick um, I look for a lot of the same qualities I've described. I look for grit. I look for resilience. Um, probably the greatest thing I look for is intellectual honesty. 
this idea of just sort of knowing what you don't know, of being able to say like, wow, I don't know anything about that. Like, I want people to say, I don't know, you know, but I'll learn and I'll figure it out. Um, and I, I think arrogance and hubris are two of the fastest ways to get me to not want to invest in somebody. Um, uh, confidence is different than arrogance, right? I'm very self-confident um, about what I think I'm good at and what I know and what I, but I'm also very confident about what I don't know. And I will rapidly change my opinion, even if it's strongly held when I'm presented with new information. Um, and I can make very quick decisions uh, with information that is actually different than what I had held for even years. And, and that's a skill that I've had to learn for 25 years. Um, and I think it's a necessary skill to be a good investor. And I think it's a necessary skill to be a good entrepreneur because you're always dealt with change. You're always dealt with competition. You're dealt with bad um, uh, circumstances. You're dealt with good circumstances. And you have to be able to evaluate the facts in front of you objectively and be able to pivot when things change. One of the frameworks you have that I love that I, I think really helps with, with being adaptable, being able to pivot, um, this is what you've taught uh, in the past at your NYU class, and it's around the chess player, Paul Morphy. I would yeah. love for you to describe the system and, and how you think the setup of that has really been helpful for you. Oh, I love, I love how, much, how much deep research you've done on me. This is great. Um, so w one of the classes that, that, that I took at Penn was, a, was an elective class. It was called an aesthetic approach to decision-making. And um, it was taught by a former chess master. Um, and it was this, it was a, it was a very um, uh, it was a very metaphorical uh, kind of class that was rooted in a bunch of different mental frameworks about how to apply other mental models to life and to decision-making. And this was a very important and kind of keystone class in my own education. And he, he basically described the evolution of chess, which if I remember correctly, uh, chess has been around for like a thousand years. And for the first, you know, 850, 900 years of that, chess was played in a very similar way across the world which was what people call combinational. And it was very much like, you make this move, I make this move, you then make this move. You're thinking in moves ahead. You're thinking about like tit for tat. I'm gonna do this, he's gonna do that. She's gonna do this, she's gonna do that. Um, and the human mind, no matter how smart you are, um, can only think, you know, a couple dozen moves ahead. And, and by the time you're even like five, six moves ahead, the permutations are almost impossible to comprehend, right? Because there's all different combinations and permutations that can happen thereafter. Paul Morphy was a 21-year-old genius who came along, I believe it was in the mid-1800s, um, and, and quickly became the, the world chess champion as a 21-year-old. Um, and he had a different style, which today is what all masters, grandmasters play, which is described as positional. And the notion of positional chess is that um, instead of trying to think 30 moves ahead, which is impossible, um, I'll, I'll of course think a few moves ahead, um, but I'm gonna think about positioning my board in such a way that 
I can handle offense and I can handle defense and I can handle things you do that I cannot predict because of my position, because of how I arrange the pieces. Um, I will be able to deal with your strong moves better and I will be able to capitalize on your weak moves better. Um, even though I may do a few things that don't have an explicit direct combinational move in mind, right? So it's this idea of sort of setting a foundation. Um, and, and I like to think about it because I come from a world of quantitative finance and derivatives, which involves options. I like to think about it as maximizing optionality is sort of the way I describe it, right? Which is that, and there's, there's sort of like a lot of, of metaphors uh, about this that, that you've heard over literally thousands of years, um, which is this concept of the harder I work, the luckier I become. Um, and and uh, in fact, I, I believe so much in this principle, I tattooed it on my, on my arms. So you might be able to see here in Hebrew, I literally have hard work brings luck in Hebrew tattooed on both of my arms um, because I believe in it so strongly. Uh, but it's this idea that there's certain things you can do in life that optimize your optionality so that you can see good luck when it happens and you can uh, uh, defend against bad luck when it happens. Um, and it's this, and it's this concept that's really profound, um, uh, that, that extends into every aspect of my life. Um, and I think it's, it's a critical, critical framework, uh, for decision-making and for, you know, having a life that you're happy with. How does this come to fruition for you with, with what you've built? Let's think about this foundationally at Human Co. Um, well, you know, look, I, I, um, I've made plenty of decisions that have failed. Um, but a lot of people don't see those. Um, but, you know, behind any sort of successful entrepreneur, there's lots and lots of failure. Um, I've had plenty of periods which were terrible uh, for me. Um, uh, but I've always been thinking long term and I've always been thinking about maximizing optionality in terms of what I want to do in my life, what makes me happy and, and where I think I'm advantaged, you know, a, a concept in poker. Um, and again, there's a lot of different quotes around this, uh, but it's this idea of you want to pick tables, which are unfair for you in a good way, right? You don't want to sit at the best table where everyone is a pro. Even if you're also a pro, you want to pick tables where you crush it and you have to find uh, you have to use frameworks in life for how you can decide where you have unfair advantages and where you don't. And then you have to be really honest. And this is why I sort of evolved my, my own uh, hedge fund evolution. I was in the hedge fund business for 20 years, but I effectively changed my job within the hedge fund industry four times. And, and each time I changed my job, it was because I felt like I had exhausted my path where I had significant advantages and I felt like I was sort of playing with everybody else at that point. And then I would pivot again and look for, you know, what, what I call easier games. Um, 
And, um, you know, Human Co. is really a culmination of all of my interests in life, um, which is really, you know, investing, entrepreneurship, uh, and health and wellness. Um, and, you know, my health and wellness, which you clearly will know because you've done some research, you know, really um, uh, starts or, or emanates from my early 20s. Uh, I got very sick. And I was very sick when I was 23 and 24 years old, right when I started working. I was diagnosed with a few diseases for which there was, I was told there was no cure. Um, and and the worst of which was a degenerative eye disease where they told me I was going to be blind by the age of 30. And I was losing my vision pretty rapidly uh, at that time. Uh, and it was extremely traumatic for me. Um, and especially because doctors told me that I couldn't fix it. And, you know, here was a guy who I thought after, you know, five years of extreme overachievement, like I could fix anything. Um, and now they're telling me, like, you're doomed. Um, and, and I ultimately fixed it uh, through food and lifestyle against what they told me was possible. Um, I cured myself basically with healthier living. Uh, I've basically been in remission for almost 20 years now. Um, and I have now been since then, I've been deeply passionate about making it easier for other people to live a healthier life. Um, and uh, Human Co. is a holding company, uh, not a fund, um, where we're buying uh, companies, we're investing in companies uh, that all have a similar philosophy and ethos um, around setting a new standard for health and wellness um, and really allowing people to trust um, because I, I find, and I'm sort of a, a, a power user of all these health and wellness products, but I find it living today is very difficult. You know, it's, it's hard to navigate. There's so much confusion. There's so much bullshit and greenwashing and fake healthy stuff that I wanted to create stuff that people could go, you know what? I know the way Jason lives and, and, you know, the first company that was the manifestation of this was Hugh which I started with my brother-in-law, Jordan Brown, and my wife, Jessica. And my brother-in-law, Jordan, is as neurotic as I am. And we wanted a place where people could go, I know how crazy Jordan and Jason are. And if, if, if they approve of this, I'll try. Um, and, and that, I felt like what we did with Hugh, we sold Hugh recently to Mondelez, the company that owns Cadbury and Oreos. Um, and what I wanted to do with Human Co. was sort of a next chapter where I wanted to do the same kind of philosophy and ethos that we did with Hugh, but to do it in other categories of food, of uh, personal care, beauty, household products, where these are things that you put in your body and on your body every day. But there's just a lot of modern poison that's affecting everybody. And, and I really wanted to, to stop that. It almost sounds like you guys have the big foundation in terms of, of what you're trying to do around healthier living. And then now you have these different verticals that you can attack a similar playbook. Is that true? Yeah. It, yeah. And, and, and I'd say that, that um, when, after we started Hugh, um, I also was, uh, I started to become an angel investor, a board member and an advisor to a bunch of other health and wellness oriented companies. Uh, because I liked helping other entrepreneurs with what I had learned and what I knew 
And, and I found that a lot of entrepreneurs in the health and wellness space, particularly 10 years ago, were very long on mission and purpose and short on business acumen, right? They didn't fully understand what I knew as a professional investor on how to allocate capital and how to hire people and how to structure your business. And, and um, I wanted to help them with that. Because if you're if you're too passionate and too fanatical without a business background, you'll fail. Um, and what happened was is I ended up uh, building a, almost by accident a an health and wellness ecosystem over the last eight nine years of entrepreneurs, celebrities, um, high profile public company executives, uh, logistics, supply chain, organic ingredient companies. Um, and then I looked around and I'm like, wow, I have this whole ecosystem where I can actually create companies from scratch with all of these things I have in place now. And if we buy companies, we can really help them accelerate their path because of all of this know-how and all of these sort of advantages that we've put in place that will accelerate their own path. It's a pretty great model to have. One thing I have to hit on, because a little while ago, you, you were talking kind of specifically around tech businesses and people put too much thought around great products going to sell. You need people and you have a big focus on the people. The team you had at Hue, great people. That product, though, was insane. The chocolate created. So I would just love to know like, how such an immense effort went into that and, and how you created such a great product overall. Yeah, look, the uh, I got to give a lot of credit. The mastermind behind the chocolates, my brother-in-law Jordan, and and um, he, um, you know, he and I are, are very different in a lot of ways, but we're very similar in our neurosis, and and we both have a bar that's higher than anyone I've ever met in food, um, and you know, I I I. I, I I don't dare compare myself to Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs was known for sort of having a bar uh, in products and product experience that nobody else had in terms of how high he set that bar. And I think we have that in food, uh, Jordan and I. And um, when the, the background of the chocolate was, you know, we, we started Hugh with, as a restaurant uh, and Hugh stood for human because uh, we believe that people don't eat like humans anymore. Uh, and we wanted people to get back to eating and being like a human. And so our slogan to Hugh is get back to human. And um, and I've been a huge fan and proponent of evolution and anthropology and evolutionary principles um, for as long as I can remember. I, I was obsessed with Darwin in high school. I was obsessed with the concept of evolution. And I really believe that that a lot of our modern ailments today are because we're doing things that are inconsistent with our own evolutionary path as, as humans. Uh, and this is obviously happening with animals and it's happening with the ecology of the world and global warming and all this stuff. Um, and um, we were making grain-free uh, scones, cookies, muffins, and we needed chocolate chips for these. And we couldn't find chocolate that met our, our really strict specs. We needed chocolate that was, uh, had no cane sugar, had no refined sugar, had no dairy, um, had no soy, had no fake anything in it, and we couldn't find it. And and we found a few like natural chocolates, but they were gross. Um, and uh, 
we, uh, we found a chocolatier who we hired as a consultant. And basically it was like, and we were always really good about what we didn't know. So when we didn't know something, we hired outside people to help us. And we'd say, okay, here's what we want. Here's exactly how we want it to look. Can you help us? And he didn't know if it was possible, which was to create a chocolate with at the time was just uh, basically two ingredients, which was, which was uh, cacao and, uh, and unrefined coconut sugar. And unrefined coconut sugar is lower glycemic than cane sugar. It has some trace minerals in it. It's, it's one of the healthiest real sweeteners that's out there. Um, and uh, after a lot of trial and error, and I don't know how many iterations it was, but it was dozens. And I remember the first few versions of our chocolate were disgusting. Um, and we just kept trying. And we finally hit it. And, um, and Jordan had this idea of turning them into bars. Um, and Jordan had this idea of basically creating really indulgent bars. And, and like our first, our first bar that put us on the map was our almond butter puff quinoa bar, which was filled with almond butter and puff quinoa. Um, and, and you may have had it and, and it it just sort of, people were like, holy crap, I can't believe this is healthy. This is the best chocolate I've ever had. Um, but it, it really, you know, it really came down to basically, I see in in all aspects of entrepreneurship, people have this mindset of just like, get the product to like good enough and, and release it. And sometimes that's the right model, but we had this philosophy of it's gotta be epic. Like even if it takes us two months longer, even if it breaks the budget, it's gotta be epic. And that's the standard we've held ourselves to um, and I just feel like most people don't do that. Most people are just sort of stop when it's good enough. And we didn't. And I think that was a big part of kind of the success of, of you. Yeah. The, the two big things there are how high you set that bar and then the adaptability. You mentioned iteration, iteration, retrying, reformulating, uh, two key, key principles there. You were also mentioning about kind of the, the interest in biology, evolution, anthropology, where do you think you've spent the most time studying outside your field, but actually has a direct impact with what you do in terms of at human co and with investing? Well, I'd say, you know, a lot of the mental models that I've built up over the last 25 years have been in, uh, human psychology is a big one. Um, evolution, uh, anthropology, biology, and, and, uh, I'll, I'll say kind of anatomy and nutrition. Um, you know, I, I was, I was always into nutrition, um, even before I was sick, you know, I took, I took an elective in nutrition in college, uh, pass fail just because I wanted to. Um, I was always fascinated with kind of what makes the body optimal and what makes the body work. And, and, and I'd say I've spent the most amount of time on anthropology and evolution, um, uh, of, in terms of its influence on what we're doing at HumanCo uh, and how I think about living a healthy life, I'd say that's where I, I'm probably the most uh, focused. I mean, you're just a deep-rooted expert in a lot of this now. I'm wondering, what's obvious to you that's not to a lot that you actually like implement daily that most people might not know about? This doesn't have to be around a certain product or anything like that. I'm just curious if there's certain things that you've foundationally just found so impactful. Um, 
Well, I, I, I would say, and, and, and this is controversial. So for, you know, for, for those listeners who hear this, they may not be happy with this. Um, but there's just so much science around this and, and, and people want to ignore the science because it just doesn't feel right. Um, but um, most of what I do is plant-based, but I am not a vegan. Um, and, and, and I don't believe there's any evolutionary evidence that supports that we should be vegans. Um, I think being vegan uh, is, is generally better for the planet for sure. Uh, especially, and, and, and to be clear, I am vehemently against industrial agriculture uh, with respect to animals um, in terms of, you know, raising chickens and cows in particular in caged environments with hormones and antibiotics and not letting them live the way they evolved. Um, uh, but I think there's a, there's a movement happening right now with plant-based everything where most of this plant-based stuff is hyper-processed. It's filled with a lot of chemicals. There's in, in some of the plant-based innovations, there are literal, literally uses of what's called synthetic biology. Uh, and we're creating molecules that have never existed in human nature before, uh, like what's in the Impossible Burger. Um, they're trying to grow flesh uh, in Petri dishes, uh, what's called cell-based meats. Um, these are things that I'm very, uh, skeptical of. I'd say in the case of some of these plant-based meats, like beyond meat, they're just unequivocally unhealthy for you. Um, they're, they're definitely better for cows to be clear, but I don't think we should be conflating what's better for the world and the earth with what's better for human health. And I think there's an intersection, uh, particularly in something called regenerative farming, um, where regenerative farming is basically letting the animals live in a wild setting and letting them coexist with nature the way evolution has happened for the last 100,000 years. And there are a handful of regenerative farms that are being created now all over the country. There's one here right outside of Austin called Rome uh, Ranch, um, which were the entrepreneurs behind the Epic Bar that they sold to General Mills. And they're creating a regenerative farm, which is spectacular. Uh, and, and their regenerative farm actually is capturing more carbon uh, than what Beyond Meat is doing. Um, and they're eating meat, um, you know, and, and they have a process of how to coexist with these wild animals. And these wild animals and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of vegans are very militant and they're shaming. And, and, and my approach in human co and in nutrition is to not shame people. People have all sorts of habits. You know, some of them are uneducated. Some of them are educated and voluntarily choose their habits. I think shaming people is a terrible, terrible approach. Um, there are some people who do better on vegan diets, for sure. There are some people uh, who don't. And there's a lot of nutritional disadvantages uh, to being full, full vegan. Um, but I think if you're eating animals, they should be wild animals. They should be animals that are living in conditions that are consistent with their own evolution um, and there are many, many Aboriginal tribes all over the world who uh, have not been exposed to modern culture, um, who live on meat, um, literally live on it, uh, and, um, and have none of our modern diseases. There are also tribes that live on plants uh, and are also great. And what's consistent across all these Aboriginal tribes 
who are living more the way we used to live as hunter gatherers is that everything in their diet is unprocessed. Everything in their diet is as wild as you could get. And humans are uh, remarkably adaptable. Um, and they don't have any of our modern diseases. Uh, and so I, I, I would say that, that just teaching people to, to live in more consistent ways with evolutionary principles, getting back to more unprocessed lifestyles, whether it's vegan or whether it's meat or it's omnivorous. Um, I just think there's right now too much of a movement of people like, oh, I want keto. I want plant-based. And so to try to remove sugar, they're replacing it with all sorts of processed crap that are chemicals that we have no idea what they're going to do to us. Uh, and in the case of the plant-based movement, these are hyper-processed Frankenstein pieces of crap that just are plant-based. And I have to remind people that like French fries and Coca-Cola are plant-based. Yeah. Like plant-based doesn't mean it's healthy. And so it's just, this is the thing that I think about a lot. And I, and I, I just wish people were more open-minded about it. Yeah, no, no that, that's what you bring up. Uh, you talked about this earlier, right? Like strong opinions, but fluid to change based on new information. I think more people need to dive into what's actually behind some of these things, which is what you do really well. I agree. I, I've removed processed foods and just my energy levels, everything so far has jumped up. Uh, it's, it's been pretty remarkable there. I, I am wondering, you mentioned you spent a lot of time thinking about that. What about besides that? Where, where is Jason spending the most time thinking right now? On business or on life? Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like you've actually done a really tremendous job throughout your evolution of understanding the importance of both and finding yeah. that merger and blend of the two. So I, I'd be curious to hear how you think through that. I mean, look, it, it, it's obviously a bias because of what I do at Human Co., I spend the most amount of time thinking about uh, disease um, and uh, sustainability. Those are kind of always the two things on my head because these are the two kind of icebergs that are coming at us in the Titanic. And I think disease is actually more, uh, more prominent than what's happening. With, I mean, both are, are, are epically scary and I think people are sort of thinking about like, that's not in my lifetime, you know, that's in someone else's lifetime. So I'll, I'll deal with it then in terms of, you know, on the sustainability side, I think everyone sort of knows this in terms of what's happening with biodiversity, what's happening with global warming, what's happening with the melting ice caps, what's happening with, with kind of carbon emissions. And um, uh, this is something that people seem to gravitate to with more like um, passion Um but I think what's happening with human health is actually far more catastrophic. Uh, they're both terrible, but um, what's happening with human health is so remarkably bad. Uh, and it's not, I, I would say there's still people who are on the fence of global warming. Like there's no scientists who are on the fence with what's happening with human health in terms of chronic disease, diabetes, obesity, all in the last 40 years. I mean, it's really fast in, you know, in evolutionary principles versus, you know, we've been, basically full humans for 200,000 years. And just in the last 40 years, we've had more changes in our kind of health than we have in the previous 99.99%. Yeah. And, and so I spend a ton of time on, on this topic, on how do we help people? How do we help people change their behaviors? Um, what is it that's holding people back? And I think a lot of it is just sort of, it's convenience. You know, Al Gore used the, used the term inconvenient truth 
it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to like eat healthier. It is. Um, and it's one of these things like it's such a slow moving um, disease that you're slowly getting sick for most people. I had the good fortune. Most people would think it wasn't good fortune, but in some ways it was a blessing. I got sick really fast in my 20s. And I'm kind of a canary in the coal mine with with what my own issues are. But most people like it takes them 20 years to get really sick, you know, and they slowly put on weight and they slowly get pre-diabetic and they slowly developed um, uh, kind of clogged arteries and they slowly develop heart disease and they slowly get mentally impaired and they just think that's sort of normal with aging. Um, it's not, it's not normal. Um, and so that's where I probably spend the most amount of time, uh, thinking. Yeah, Jason, you know, I have so much passion about this, not only for myself, my my family, but then obviously I have two young kids. So a ton of my focus is going to this as well. So I love, I love people like you. so intelligent, so hardworking at the forefront of this. Uh, I want to make sure people are are more aware of human co and then we're going to round this one out with just two final questions. But, but what do you want people to know about Human Co that you haven't said and where can they get connected with you guys? So we're still in the early days. Um, uh, you know, our website has a lot of information, humanco.com. We have three brands now uh, that are, are part of Human Co that we're constantly improving. One of which is a plant-based butter and cream cheese company that's very new and small called Monty's. Um, uh, the website is livemontes.com. The second one is a plant-based ice cream company, hundred percent organic focused on sustainability. I think it's the best plant-based ice cream out there. It's why we bought the company. It's called coconut bliss, um, coconutbliss.com that's sold, uh, in several thousand stores all over the country. You can also buy it online. Uh, and then we just created a, a new company from scratch, uh, called Snow Days. Um, Snow Days, we're trying to reinvent frozen comfort food, uh, which is what I grew up on. I didn't realize it was junk food when I was growing up eating it. Things like Totino's pizza rolls, uh, which are which are such fake food. Totino's is filled with so many chemicals. It's got over 70 ingredients. It doesn't even use real cheese. Um, it's an abomination. Um, and it is it is sort of the epitome of what's making us sick in this country. But people consume it like mad. Um, and we wanted to basically create an ultra clean, healthy version of that that is epically delicious. Uh, and we called it Snow Days because I grew up in a place on the East Coast where we would have snow days from time to time. And my mom would come in and say, hey, Jason, there's a snow day and you don't have school today. And you would be like, holy crap, I can't believe it. I feel like you know, like a, like you feel free and liberated. Um, and that's the feeling you get when you come across foods that you don't have to be vigilant about and ask like, what's in this, who made it? Like what's their motive. And, and that's really snow days is frankly like the, the kind of ethos behind what we're doing at human co. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'd say between those three websites and the human co website, um, that would be one way to, to get to know us. And then we also, in December, we launched a SPAC um, called Human Co-Acquisition Corp. It trades on the NASDAQ. The ticker is HMCO. Um, I can't talk much about it because it's a public company. Um, but uh, we are looking to buy and shepherd 
a private company that's bigger than a billion dollars and shepherd them to be a public company. And I believe there are not enough public companies that have this mission of health and wellness available to public market investors. And we partnered with uh, one of the top venture funds in the space called Cavu Ventures. And uh, Cavu and Human Co. Uh, are the sponsors of this SPAC. And, and uh, you know, I think we're going to do great things with that. So stay tuned. Yeah, no, I love it. And uh, big fans of Cavu, Brett Thomas, uh, fun conversation with him the other day. So yeah, we're, we're all aligned with that. Here, final two. I know you've been a voracious reader. Um, we love book recommendations here. I'm knowing over your career, which ones have you just really enjoyed and, and don't hold back here? Anything that you've enjoyed throughout the years, we'd love hearing about. Um, I'd say uh, Fooled by Randomness was one of my favorite books of all time um, uh, by Nassim Taleb. Um this idea that that we see patterns where they're not um it's just it's natural to, to humans it's how we've evolved we, we are pattern seeking machines uh the way our brain works um I, I that was that was a foundational book for me um uh there's been a, a recent book that came out by annie duke who was a professional poker player called thinking in bets um and and that that book is very consistent with how i think um, and it was done by a professional poker player who was extremely, extremely accomplished. Uh, and she was a female, which at the time when she was accomplished was very rare. Uh, you know, poker has historically been a very male dominated field. Um, but thinking in bets has a lot of elements of what we talked about with positional chess. Um, and, and that's a great book. And then there's, if you're interested in CPG, there's a really esoteric book called ramping your brand that most people don't know about. Um, it's very specific to CPG, um, but there's a lot of elements in uh, in that book um, about how to take a more deliberate approach to building brand equity. Um, and and I hadn't seen a book like it ever. Uh, and, and so I'd say those are probably three books uh, to really get started. Yeah, that ramping your brand. Uh, anyone involved in consumer packaged goods, I, I highly recommend as well. And then people, they know how much I'm a fan of Annie Duke. We featured her both for her book, um, Thinking in Bets, and then How to Decide. Final, oh, you did? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. She's she's been. I should I should have given you more esoteric books. <laughs> well, if you got if you got one more, feel feel free to throw it out there. Uh, but final one here: if you were going to do this with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, we're thinking long term or, or long format conversation. Who would you love having a conversation with? Probably Ben Franklin. Yeah. Yeah. Ben was, uh, Ben Franklin was always a, w an inspiration for me. The more you read about him, um, he, I consider myself a polymath. Um, I, I study lots of different fields. I love the intersection of fields. He was like one of the best original polymaths, him and Da Vinci, you know, I, in, in high school, I was obsessed with the two of them. Um, and this idea of taking, learnings from one field and applying it in a different field that people hadn't done before was, was like so revolutionary at those times. Um, and, and the more I studied Franklin and, and the things that he did and the things that he liked, and he was a flawed man. And so was Da Vinci, by the way, like usually all of these epic, incredible people are deeply flawed in different ways. And, and part of those flaws are what makes them epic. Right. 
Um, but his his approach to learning, uh, Franklin, and and he created, which I did actually 15 years ago with a group of friends, he created something called a junto. And the junto was a gathering of people in his era who came from all different fields. Um, some of those fields were not impressive. Some of those fields were things like, like the local Mason. Um, and he would have them sit around in a group and talk about what was on their mind and talk about what they learned and talk about what they did. And that was a way for him to share learnings in different fields. Um, and, and the fact that he was so intellectually curious uh, and was, you know, at the time, probably pretty high up, you know, in, in whatever the societal hierarchies were, but he constantly was interacting with people of lower hierarchies, which at the time was not common, right? It was very much like I stick in my class and if I'm upper class, you're lower class, like, and he didn't do that. And, and I love that about him, that he was always trying to learn and that so many of his inventions and creations, you know, like the public library system, you know, the first fire department, he created University of Pennsylvania, like all of these things came out of all these learnings. And that to me was just remarkable. So Ben Franklin would definitely be the top for me. Yeah, Franklin's been foundational for me. Isaacson, uh, Walter Isaacson did both books, both on, on uh, Da Vinci and Franklin that, that dive into a lot of this that I recommend as well. Yep. But Jason, this, this has been too much fun uh, exploring a lot of this. I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on What Got You There. Yeah, no, my pleasure, Sean. This was fun. And, and I, I really appreciate how much, how much homework you did on me uh, prior to this interview. It was, it was unusual and, and it made this a great conversation. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.